Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. This segment of the Ellis Martin Report is sponsored by MX Exploration, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AMX and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as AMXEF. MX Exploration is exploring its 100% owned Perone Gold Project in Quebec, Canada, featuring super high-grade intersects. Go to their website, AmexExploration.com. And now, here's Ellis Martin with David Morgan. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with David Morgan, a precious metals aficionado armed with degrees in finance and engineering. He created the MorganReport.com website and originated the Morgan Report covering economic news, overall financial health of the global economy, currency problems, and the key reasons for investing in the resource sector. David considers himself a big picture macroeconomist whose main job is education, educating people about honest money and the benefits of a sound financial system. David, welcome back to the program. Ellis, it's been a while. It's great to be back with you. Thanks. Now I have to ask you, and I understand this is going to be an opinion and an educated opinion, but do you think we are headed into some sort of recession? Take a look at the bond market, if you will, and a lot of the indicators. Are you buying any of that or um, steady as you go? Uh, no, we've been putting in a Morgan report for several months now that we see a recession as imminent. I also think it's going to be more likely to be stagflation, which means increasing prices with the liars at the mainstream financial press telling you, oh, everything's fine. Look at this, look at that. But the reality is the physical economy is deteriorating. There's actually a contraction in the physical economy. That's pretty easy to prove, but that's not what you hear on MSNBC or any of the financial channels. So no, I'm definitely in the camp that we are probably started. In fact, the U.S. yield curve inverted as noted in these pages so many times before and the U.S. bond market still acts somewhat as a safe haven. It is losing strength as many trading partners have enough U.S. debt and are dumping and not buying anymore. Gary Schilling thinks that the U.S. recession started in the current quarter and Gary's no uh, lightweight. We are not alone standing that the economy is actually contracting. So, end of statement. It sort of seems like a replay of what we felt maybe 10 or 11 years ago somehow. If we head into a recession, could it be more protracted and deeper than what we experienced before, which is pretty tough? Yeah, I think it is. And the reason I say that is, as many that do similar things to what I do, have commented, and that is that the 2008 financial crisis has always been referred to as a financial crisis, and it was. And we really have not recovered from that, regardless of what you hear on the main channels. And what we've done since that time is we made a situation that was too much debt worse by adding even more debt. So we haven't solved anything. Now, these GDP numbers say, oh, we're growing, you know, like, uh, what, a month or two ago, we had this 3.2% number that came out and everyone's jumping up and down, oh, so much higher than expected. But no one, well, I should say no one, very few account for us. How much of that was just money printing? Now, how much real growth was there, in other words? And the answer is not much. So I think that the next one will be greater than the 2008, which is quite significant. And the reason being is they, one, haven't solved anything. And two, you had the government bailing out basically the real estate loans. I mean, you had the Fed come in and buy these garbage, garbage loans either at face value or close to it and replace them with treasury bills and treasury bonds. This time, there's no one really to bail out the government, and governments do fail. 
And so that's, I think, the situation. So we've gone, kicked that can down the road long enough, and the next kick may just take it over the cliff. With no way to paper anything out of it. Well, possibly. I mean, you know, Jim Rickards is one smart guy. I, that's one, uh, one of the few analysts I definitely have time for. And, you know, he uh, states it could go to the SDR, which really is not a fix, but a lot of this stuff is the magician on stage. As long as you believe that that rabbit disappeared, you know, it looks like the rabbit disappeared. For all intents and purposes, the rabbit disappeared. I use that metaphor to say that they could come in, they, meaning governments, to say, oh, it's failing. We can't, the banks are failing, so we're going to go to the banker's bank. We're going to go to the, you know, the IMF, and we're going to use the SDR, and we're all going to be on the SDR, and it's gold-backed, which it's not, and everything will be hunky-dory. So he's made that proposal. I probably misstated it as exactly how he has stated it. But the idea being that there could be some way out, I doubt it. I think that there is going to be, you know, the 2018 cover of the Economist magazine with currencies burning at the base of the phoenix's feet with the gold medallion around its neck, and that we're probably going to go into a lockdown system probably in some type of a cryptocurrency situation or blockchain where everybody is identified and the only way to buy and sell is if you're in that system. Where does gold or silver figure in this mix? Well, first of all, a couple ways. One is, and this is an interesting one, is there's more and more cryptos that are being gold or silver backed. In fact, I'm involved with one. You can go to ag.load.one, so it's the symbol for silver ag, period, load, L-O-D-E, period, O-N-E, and uh, take a look. And there's gold backed ones as well. So that's one competing currency, and I'm all for competing currencies, that could reinstitute, let's say, the precious metals in the monetary system with the newest technology being cryptos. That's one. The other one is kind of the opposite of that, which would be, let's say that I'm right about this potential, know your customer, take this identifier, or you can't do transactions. If you decided I'm not doing that, then you could be in the physical gold and silver realm where you're actually bartering, you could say, with real money outside of that system. So it could go both ways. Hard to say. It's so interesting the times we live in. So many things are happening. In fact, I'll read you the first Paragraph of this month's Morgan Report again, but so much is happening so quickly, it's difficult to get the quote-unquote meat for our membership and cover the most important issues relating to the financial markets. U.S. stocks fell for the fifth straight week recently, which is the longest weekly losing streak since 2011. Since our main thesis is that gold moves opposite the stock market, more so than the dollar, we are hesitant to say that the summer months will be dull for the metals. All right. In this environment, there are some star companies that exist. And honestly, they're the ones with significant grade. These are the ones that are getting the generalists involved in the sector. And these are the companies that really show promise where some of the other juniors with lower grades, they are just going to flounder, aren't they? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, there's one that we just actually did for our mastermind members. It is actually fairly low grade, but it's, and you can mine low grade, but you really got to know what you're doing. But no, grade is king. I mean, I've always made that statement. I don't want to back out of it. But yeah, for generally speaking, absolutely. I mean, just think about the most basic part of the mining business. Basically, you're taking a block of dirt or rock with minerals in it that are valuable. So if you have in that ton, you've got a gram of gold and you've got to process it. And in the other one, you've got a ton of, let's say it's a hard rock mine and you've got 
five grams of gold, which one do you want to be in? And the answer is probably the five grams because it's a higher grade. There'd be exceptions on, you know, if the metallurgy is challenging or, you know, that type of thing. But just, so you really want, grade covers a lot. I mean, the, you can make a lot more mistakes with a high-grade mine than you can with a low-grade mine. And the problem with a low-grade mine is most of them are open pit, and they're very susceptible to higher energy costs. So if the oil price goes up 25%, you may be fairly profitable at X and once your fuel costs are X plus 25%, you're no longer profitable. So that's a tough business. And any way you slice it, the mining business is not an easy one. But the companies that have the grade right now where the predicted production costs are low, they're the ones that are able to raise money in this very tough market. And they're the ones that are able to see some significant shareholder activity. It's amazing when a lot of the sectors just flat, as we've stated. Yeah, there's always kind of exceptions to the rule. I mean, you can look at even during the Great Depression, there were companies that thrived in this very languishing gold and silver or actually metals market, base metals as well. In fact, the commodities market, if you look at the CRB, it's down lower now than it was in the year 2000. Commodity Research Bureau, that's a basket of commodities. So the commodity sector at large has been selling off for years now. Point is, as you say, you've got to be a good stock picker, a good analyst. You've got to look for the best of the best, and they're out there. And certainly, they are able to raise money. I mean, most of these banks that do fund these companies, and of course, there's private investors as well, but primarily, it's some type of investment bank, usually, for at least for the bulk of it. They know what they're doing. And as you say, if you've got a situation that's going to make you money at today's prices, you are going to take that opportunity and make use of it, especially if you're, quote unquote, a believer, knowing that uh, this is pretty much a lull and a low in the market and that uh, prices are probably going to be higher in the next few years. Quebec, Canada is one of the most mining-friendly jurisdictions in the world. That's where you'll find Amex Exploration. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as AMX and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as AMXEF. Amex during their 2018-2019 drilling program on their 100% owned Perone Gold Project has returned multiple super high-grade gold intersects. These include approximately 9.5 ounces per ton of gold over 1.35 meters, 20.5 ounces per ton of gold over 0.8 meters, and 7.6 ounces per ton gold over 0.65 meters. Visible gold has been intersected in virtually every hole of the high-grade zone exploration program. Amex is led by a very senior and talented team of mine finders and mine financiers that have invested their own capital next to shareholders' capital and are committed to spending shareholder money wisely to build value. The company recently completed a $5 million financing and brought on two large investors, Eric Sprott and Commodity Capital. Amex can drill year-round and recently added a second drill to allow for regional exploration and targeted drilling on the eastern gold zone of the Perone property, which should continue to yield ample news flows throughout the balance of 2019. Follow this exciting gold discovery story by going to AmexExploration.com. I've seen indications also that some of this cannabis money, and there's been quite a bit made in the last year or two, is actually going into the resource sector as an investment tool. It's happening. That's where some of the money is coming from for these exploration and development plays. You're making me laugh. I wrote an article and coined the phrase, you know, the miners are going to pot. And that was many years ago when the whole cannabis thing started. And many did. You know, a lot of these little junior companies that are basically moose pasture and, you know, let's call them low grade or no grade. They are just a bunch of promoters that have no markets and switch, you know, one day they're XYZ mining and the next day they are ABC cannabis. And that took place. 
I don't follow that very closely. You can't be in my business and not have some conception of where that market is and where it's been. And yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, all things kind of go full cycle. You know, they go from undervalued to fair value to overvalued. And the smart money knows when something's overvalued and they'll start cycling back into something that's undervalued. So it wouldn't surprise me that smart money sees an overvalued cannabis market or at least a few of the top situations and moving that money into something that's very undervalued like resources. So it makes perfect sense. Let's get back to digital currency, cryptocurrency, if you will, which I haven't given much stock and credence to in the last year because I think it's going to pretty much implode or explode in negative fashion like the internet craze did in the late 90s. But what will come from it will actually be what you may have predicted 10 years ago, the death of fiat currency, where we have a digital currency, a global currency that happens organically, where most fiat currencies just die because they make no sense to carry money around anymore. But the only way that's sustainable and believable if it is legitimately backed by gold. Your thoughts? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm, I don't know if old school is the right terminology. I mean, we don't have time to go into it in depth, but there's two theories of money, basically. If you boil it all down, you either say money is a legal fiction and it is whatever we say it is, and that can only take place if it's at the end of a gun. In other words, you're forced to do it. Or it's organic, as you say, and that's always been gold and silver in the long term. Yes, seashells were money and salt was money and all this other stuff. Yes, 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 yes. I know that. Believe me, if there's one thing I've studied, it's monetary history. But when it gets down to the truth of the matter, the electorate, meaning the population of the planet, have decided gold and silver are money. So you've got commodity money or you've got legal fiction. Those are your two choices. The one that's lasted is God's money or gold or commodity money. I take any fee, I take any legal fiction, even at the end of the point of a gun, and they still fail. So which one do you want? You want one that fails or one that doesn't fail? I mean, it's a pretty simple choice if you look over thousands of years, but people still want to argue or whatever. So I agree that there's a strong potential that the next one will be a blockchain or a crypto backed by physical metal. And of course, you still get the trust factor into that equation. But you're right. People don't want the inconvenience of a gold coin or a silver coin in their hand and da-da-da-da. They'd much rather just do it electronically. And now the way that we're being pushed to a cashless society, it really fits that you'll have peer-to-peer, you know, your phone to your phone, your phone to the Starbucks, your phone to the Walmart, your phone to whatever that's got your account and it just does it nearly instantaneously to transfer your funds. So I'm all for competing currencies. I'd rather have it, as I just said, I want to contradict myself. I really think we should have specie or commodity money, not a fiction money. But the market's out there making decisions every day on that. And certainly there are these cryptos that are not backed by anything that seem to be doing rather well because they provide, you know, and you can ask their proponents, they've got the various reasons of why they're valuable. How's the Morgan report shifted in the last year? What are your subscribers telling you? What directions are you taking that maybe you haven't taken before? Well, we continue to upgrade the portfolio. I mean, I'm not embarrassed. I mean, we made a lot of money in Kirkland Gold. I mean, take a look at that stock. In fact, I was pleased to see it was the number one stock in investors' business daily. And if there's any periodical that really knows what they're doing when it comes to the stock market, it's IBD. I've subscribed basically from the inception. I actually was got the 
attend one of the early classes from Bill O'Neill himself, the founder of IBD. But, you know, we made money there, so that's one. The other one is that we have addressed the crypto situation for many, many months now. David Smith is more adept at this whole new technology than myself, so he writes that column every month. We are advocates of a company I already mentioned on your show, ag.load.one, which is a silverback crypto. So we write about that. Our members know about that. And then this new speculation, which isn't that new. I've been on this story for about two years now, this electronic waste situation that really is disruptive to the whole industry. It just hasn't caught fire yet, but it will. And so... You know, we're still making money, but not like we'd like to. A lot of our picks are not doing well, or even new ones, you know, are off somewhat. It's tough, but there's a lot of opportunity here. And that's where people are doing, as you said, they're moving out of cannabis and into resources or moving. It's a lot of, not a lot, but a fair amount of smart money out of stock markets. Like, hey, it's high enough and they're getting back in the gold market. If you look at the banking sector, they bought the most gold they have in like six years last year. So this money is shifting into the precious metals again and the resource sector and the commodity sector, but primarily the precious metals. And that will continue. It's going to take some time. Once the stock market starts selling off, then you'll see a lot more interest in the metals. So you see definitely something we didn't see 10 years ago. All the equities suffered under the recession. You see perhaps the precious metal equities and maybe the base metals, considering what's going on in China, you see them taking an uptick. I do. There's a lot of leverage in the mining stocks still. I mean, a lot of the funds go to the ETFs because they're easier there's very liquid. You don't have to worry about management and you know mining strikes and water issues and all the things that surround the mining industry. But again, I'll tell you, go back to the Kirkland Gold and take a look at that chart. That will beat any ETF out there. So there are opportunities in this sector, especially you know if you find them early. And you know on this e-waste situation, I keep talking about. I mean, we're basically the only ones. There's one other person in there that's talked about it on a technical basis and. He's a pretty good technician, but you really can't use, and I use technical analysis myself, but on these little micro cap stocks, it's pretty pointless to use it because there's just not enough liquidity in the issue, in the stock, in the company to make rhyme or reason out of the technical work. You got to wait until the company's actually, I'll call it going concern and well-known, well-established, and the volume is sufficient to where the technical work actually can have meaning. It's available at themorganreport.com. We just revamped the landing page so that you can learn a little bit more about this company. And if you're so inclined, get on our free email list and learn even more. David, it's always a pleasure to speak with you going on over 10 years now. I thank you for joining me today in the program. Look forward to more conversations in the future. Very good. Thank you so much. I've been chatting with analyst, investor, and newsletter writer David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. And download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. This segment of the Ellis Martin Report has been sponsored by Amex Exploration. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AMX. And in the U.S. on the OTCQX as AMXEF. Amex Exploration is exploring its 100% owned, her own gold project in Quebec, Canada. Featuring super high-grade intersects. Go to their website, AmexExploration.com. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Chris Taylor, the president and CEO of Great Bear Resources, trading as GBR on the TSX Venture Exchange 
and as GTBDF in the U.S. In 2015, Great Bear entered an agreement to acquire the Dixie Mining Claims in Ontario's prolific Red Lake Gold Mining District, where Great Bear is now earning a 100% interest in 49 mining claims. In November 2016, Great Bear nearly doubled its position in the Red Lake Mining District with its acquisition of the West Matson Gold Project, an on-strike extension of Pure Gold's high-grade Matson Project. Between the two projects and recent land acquisitions, Great Bear now has an agreement in place to control 13,000 hectares of respective greenstone belts. Chris, welcome back to the program. It's great to have you on the air again today. Appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for speaking with me again, Alice. You have some fantastic news coming out of the Dixie property in the Red Lake District of Ontario. Tell us about it. All right. This is about a 2.5-kilometer step out from the hinge zone discovery that we made last year. The hinge, we've been drilling it and talking about it a lot. It's a great Red Lake-style high-grade vein discovery that we've been expanding on. This is now something completely different. We call it the Bear Ramini Zone. We drilled the first test drill hole across a very big structural target that we actually staked the Dixie Project in order to control. So the Dixie property is about 22 kilometers long, and that runs parallel to a highway, a power line, and it's about a 20-minute drive from Red Lake, Ontario, where Newmont Gold Corp has their big operation. That's about roughly about a 20-minute drive from our project. So the first time that we put a drill hole across this big structure, we've now intersected multiple zones of shallow, high-grade gold mineralization. And by high-grade, I mean the highlight interval that we talked about today was a couple meters of about 200 grams per ton gold. Within that, there was about a half a meter interval of about 25 ounces per ton, 760 grams per ton gold. There was a deeper interval of about 14 meters of just over 12 grams per ton, so 14 meters of about a third of an ounce. We also had within that, there was about just under five meters of an ounce per per ton gold, and that includes some higher grade sub-intervals. And even below that, we had wide intervals of lower grade mineralization, 50 meters or so of uh, just under a gram. Very exciting new discovery, a gold zone in the first hole. We see gold in the core over 110 meters of core length, and the structural target that that's in, we have it on our project for about 18 kilometers of total length. So it's the sort of discovery that has really that district scale potential, which can be transformative for effectively the exploration strategy for Great Bear and really has very good implications for exploration and mining in the Red Lake District of Ontario. Chris, can I interpret from what you just said that there might be significant grade on the low end and the high end of the numbers that you discussed throughout the 18-kilometer length of the property that you described? This is the question that we now have to answer with the drill bit, and that's really what we're doing next. So we actually went in after this discovery, and we looked at every drill hole, and there were 15 of them that were drilled along two and a half kilometers of this structure to date. Now, what we noticed in the discovery drill hole that we had was that within the actual structural zone, what we interpret the high strain zone, this is a two billion year old gold bearing fault system. So within that zone, there's typically low grade mineralization. You get 30 meters, 50 meters of gram to subgram type material. And what we saw in our drill hole was the drill hole was drilled from the north of the fault to the south, crossing the fault as it went. And the lower grade material was in the 
actual fault zone. The high-grade material was north of the fault in the footwall rocks. And what we noticed looking at the other 15 drill holes along two and a half kilometers of strike of the 18, which have been drilled so far, what we saw was the same lower-grade gold mineralization in the same faulted rock that had hosted it in our discovery hole. And we noticed that the only drill holes that were drilled north towards the footwall of that structure were seeing increasing alteration and increasing grade and then were terminated by past explorers. The indications, they're early, but they look positive that we have at least two and a half kilometers of gold drilled within that structural feature, but there's only one hole so far, ours, which has crossed from the footwall into the hanging wall. And that's what we now need to duplicate along more strike length. I can't tell you yet how many gold zones, what the continuity of gold is along that feature, but it's looking like the gold system is present for at least two and a half kilometers along that feature to date with the drilling that's been done. Every drill hole that went into that fault has gold in it. How far into the 60,000 meter drill program are you? We still have just under 40,000 meters to go. And is that all going to happen this year? Yeah. We initially, up until February of 2019 of this year, we only had one drill rig on the project. So we were drilling the Dixie Limb Zone, which is the zone we knew about when we originally optioned and then acquired the property. Then our hinge zone discovery, that began expanding. And then as of about Valentine's Day of 2019, we brought in a second drill rig and that began drilling regional exploration holes. We're not really stepping out. We're exploring brand new targets. And this is a brand new discovery based on that regional drilling. And then the second drill rig then moved down and we've done more drilling subsequent to that into the hinge and Dixie limb zones. And we have a third drill rig that we've announced that'll be coming in the near future. That one will very likely focus on this target going forward. And the other two drills will focus on the other discoveries that we have, the hinge zone and the Dixie limb zone. At what point do we get some sort of new insane resource estimate potentially? Well, you know, the way I answer that question when I get asked is that right now, every time we step out into a new area, we get more gold. And I'm not sure out of all the holes that we've done on the property so far, I believe like 95% of them have gold mineralization in them. And we keep stepping out further and further, and we keep encountering more mineralization. So I think the best time to get a resource to the market is once you understand the potential scope of the system. If we had just hunkered down and drilled off a resource on the original Dixie limb when we first got the project, you would not know about the hinge zone and you would not know now about the new Bear Romini zone in this big 18-kilometer long target. So what we need to do is drill enough and get an idea for how many gold zones there are over what kind of area. And once we've had a good idea what the scope of gold mineralization on the project is, then you can start doing resource calculations and resource definition drilling. Right now, this is wide open, and because the project is 22 kilometers long, it's really a district-scale target in its own right. So it would be probably akin to shooting yourself in the foot by coming out with a resource prematurely on what looks to be a very sizable gold system. So, in other words, your answer to my question perhaps is, I don't know, I don't have any idea. (laughs) In fairness, yeah, let's see how big it is before we start trying to put boundaries on it. Right. Now, I know your team is really tight with the Newmont Gold Court people. Are they trying to lock you up right now to uh, sequester a deal? That's the kind of thing I just can't speculate on. I can say that we've attracted a lot of attention from various players in the market. So it's definitely this project is checking off a lot of boxes in terms of technical review and potential. 
uh, gold endowment. So that's about all that I can say. Fair enough. Now, this sector has been quiet for a very long time, with the exception of companies like yours. Would you care to comment on that? Yeah, I would say over the last number of years, the issue that the industry has been having is competition. There was a move several years ago into these sort of exchange-traded funds, so passive investment versus active portfolio management. So that was impactful and reduced the amount of profile of the industry. And subsequent to that, in recent years, we've had other types of speculative investment like cryptocurrencies, you know, the blockchain craze of a couple of years back, the Bitcoin craze, and then more recently in Canada, investment in cannabis companies as that became sort of the hot ticket item. But really, the resource investment, mineral exploration stage, just traditionally decade after decade in our history, in the history of the U.S., they are volatile, but they are the mechanism where shareholders have made many multiples of their investment dollars. And I think making a discovery like this and going from, in our case, you know, at the beginning of 2018, we were probably, I would guess, about a $10 million market cap. Today, going into 2019, we were a $100 million market cap. And the ability to continue to generate new discoveries like this, I would say our valuation prospects are very positive. So I hope discoveries like this are a way for us to show the industry that we are relevant and that we still have the capability to generate the kinds of returns investors are looking for in this sector. Chris, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program. I look forward to more updates as you have them this summer. Thanks very much, Ellis. Please call me anytime. I've been speaking with Chris Taylor, the president and CEO of Great Bear Resources, trading as GBR on the TSX Venture Exchange and as GTBDF in the U.S. Find the Great Bear logo on our website, ellismartreport.com, and click through to their website for more information. I'm Ellis Martin. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with James Pettit, the president and CEO of Abin Resources, trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Abin Resources is a Canadian gold exploration company with significant projects in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and the Yukon. Jim, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Ellis. Good to be here. As I understand it, you have engaged in an ambitious exploration program for both the Justin Gold Project in the Yukon and the Forest Kerr Gold Project in BC's Golden Triangle. Why don't you tell us all about it? Well, yeah, it's going to be a good year, I think, for exploration up there in both areas. I've added in the Justin program this year. We'll do just over a million dollars worth of drilling, and it'll be about 2,000 meters in total on the Justin. It's time. We've done a couple seasons worth of field work up there and a lot of sampling, and the sampling and trenching we did has turned out to be pretty encouraging. We've done work there back in 2012, and I'm talking about the Yukon property, the Justin. 2011 and 12, we drilled about 19 holes we hit gold in the majority of them what we found back then was an intrusion related gold system which has the potential for scale for size but it's lower grade what we've done in the last few years through just some field work and more sampling trenching mapping that sort of thing we came up with a different type of gold environment that's about a kilometer and a half away from the pow zone that we found in 2011 and 12 it's orogenic in nature it's older it's prone to coarse gold 
high grade. It's very similar to the Golden Predator project next door to us, the Three Aces project. So we've named our new zone there the Lost Ace. We're in the same lithology, a little higher elevation in it. And what we think is that the intrusion may well have created this. We think there's possibly some overprinting of the mineralization could possibly lead to enriching for the POW zone. We just don't know yet. So we're going to go in and drill. We're going to use a RAB drill that'll give us about up to 20 holes. They're shallow because what we've got there in the new 3A zone is it's on surface. So we think that it's all been brought up by the younger intrusion that's just beside it. So it's going to be an interesting season up there. And then we're actually starting starting to mobilize now. So we'll be finished drilling up there by the end of June. That's when we start on the Forest Kerr. So it's going to give us another month of drilling this year, which is a good thing. It's going to give us more news flow. And it's another project that has potential for high grade. And that's kind of our mandate. It's what we're looking for in the Forest Kerr project is high grade potential. We're a couple seasons into the Forest Kerr. We've established that there is high grade there, that's for sure. What we're going to do this year in the Forest Kerr is we'll start in May with a airborne geophysical survey, a mag survey. It'll be over the whole boundary zone that we've been working in the last three years. That is the primary area and focus that we've got up there is this boundary zone. There's something tremendous going on. There's an awful lot of mineralization. This geophysical survey will give us a good picture of the structure at depth. We think we're still open in most of what we've done there at depth. So this is going to help us tremendously. We'd really like to know where the mineralization is coming from, that sort of thing. And that'll help guide us in the future for more drilling going forward. And we've got some good plans up there. We've got three areas we want to get into right away. And hopefully we have a start like we did last year. And then from there on, I mean, we're looking at three to four months of drilling and we've got the money to do it. We've got over 5 million in the till. We're looking to start with 5,000 meters. That's the goal. And if we have good results, we can stretch that out to another 10 like we did last year. And then you'll just continue to step out in BC, right? Yeah. Well, this geophysical survey is going to be overlaying the geochem survey that's been done in the past there. And that's going to give us a lot better knowledge for finding more targets to work with because as we move south on the boundary zone there wasn't as much geophysical work done in the past that we couldn't use it so we're going to have that to work with this year. What's the environment like in the Yukon right now specifically I'm talking about the merger acquisition aspect of what has been going on there. Do you think it's changed? Do you think it's the same and how will that potentially affect urban resources in the Yukon? Well there's been a lot going on up there. When Newmont bought Gold Corp, there's been some changes in the area there. That I know that now that Colorado Gold has been pretty much merged with, or whatever you want to call it, with, well, it was originally going to be, it was Gold Corp. Now that's Newmont's taken that on. They've also now stepped up with GT Gold, which is a really good move, I think. Plus, Newmont has also got half the Glore Creek project now, which is on our northern border. They took out Nova Gold, so it's Tech and Newmont own that now. They're spending millions up there this year on the Glore Creek and sort of reinvigorate that because that's well into development stage of a mine, and it's a tremendous copper gold project. So if that gets back on track, that'll be something. Then Glore Creek Road runs right through our northern boundary of our property. And Colorado, the, the deal Colorado, that's on our southern bound. So they're all around us. So they're also doing some work now up in the Yukon next to our not well-known hit property, which is just north of the Justin. So Newmont's making a statement. I think there'll probably be more interest from majors in the area. So I'm hopeful anyway. So when you're done with drilling, because you're doing it early, you'll have no real competition with the assay labs. You'll be able to get some results hypothetically right away. Yeah. For the Yukon project, and generally we'll be starting 
drilling before most companies up there. So the initial part of our season is usually good. We can get a quick, probably 30-day turnaround. But as the season stretches on and we get further into summer, things slow down because the bottleneck gets created by everybody else who's drilling and sending assays into the lab. By the end of the summer, we're probably going to be waiting for two months. Let's do a little prognostication, which is very forward-looking in this particular business and in this market. So we're just speculating at this point. Where do you see Oven Resources in about a year? What's the dream? Well, the dream would be we have a very successful season in learning more and more about where the gold's coming from, more specifically. We'll get a better handle on the structure and some of the deep-seated structural features that are going to help us. With that comes a tremendous amount of knowledge. There's already a lot of interest in the area, and there's a lot of eyes on it in terms of other big players. they're watching. I think you could see more M&A up there. I think that's a natural, and I think there's always that possibility with us, but this is pure speculation at this point. Let's talk about the share structure for those that are new to the story. Well, the share, well, there's about 111 million shares, 112 million shares out, and about 130 million fully diluted, which allows us generally what happens during the season is we get a lot of warrant taken down and fortunately get options exercised by people in the company. And that allows us to raise, like last year, we probably brought in another million and a half dollars on top of the financing we did. So we're in good shape. And we don't have to do a financing this year. That doesn't mean we won't if we're successful. It's been a tough year for raising money for a lot of companies, but in Canada, we have that flow-through capability, which is a tax credit style of financing for exploration. And all the funds are out of money right now. They've allocated all their money, and a lot of it went to the Golden Triangle. The GT Gold raised a lot of money, and Colorado's put a lot of money in the till, and that's pretty much depleted any funds that are out there. I've been offered a fair amount of money. We're in the decision process there right now. A lot of people are having trouble raising money and we're fortunate we're in the area we're in because that's definitely grabbing the attention of not only the financial markets, but the investment markets as well. Well, Jim, I wish you all the best as usual. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I look forward to more conversations in the very near future when you have some more news. Thanks for joining me. Oh, we'll definitely have more news. Look forward to it. Thanks. I've been speaking with James Pettit, the president and CEO of Aubin Resources, trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Find their logo on our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Remember, all companies showcased on this program have paid for the privilege to be interviewed by Mr. Martin. Should you consider investing in them, do so at your own risk. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Rick Rule, the president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings Incorporated. Mr. Rule is considered one of the top experts on natural resource securities investing. At Sprott, he leads a highly skilled team of earth science and finance professionals who also enjoy a wide reputation for resource investment management. Mr. Rule is one of the keynote speakers and panelists at the Sprott Natural Resource Symposium to be held Monday, July 29th, 2019 through Friday, August 2nd, 2019 at the Fairmont Hotel Vancouver in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. To register for this event, go to SprottConference.com. That's SprottConference.com. I hope to see you there. Rick, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me on again. 
Now, the first time I met you, it was in Miami back in 2001, and resources was just a small part of that particular conference. I think we've sort of circled back to where not as many eyes are looking at the resource sector as, as let's say, probably even two years ago or, or three years ago or five years ago. Is this the best possible time to potentially invest? Very, very prophetic comment, and great for you for setting the stage. You'll recall that 2001 was the liftoff of one of the best bull markets and resources that we've ever seen. The truth is that resource-based businesses are capital-intensive and extremely cyclical. And the primary truth is that bear markets are the cause of bull markets and vice versa. So I'm very, very optimistic that the current malaise that we're in, which is the worst I've seen, by the way, since the 1980s, will be literally the cause of a spectacular bull market. Usually the triggers, and I believe in 2001, the trigger was could be 9-11. Maybe we shouldn't go there, but it was part of that cycle that turned things around. We have a great economy now, according to everything I'm hearing, unless you want to disagree with that, which is one of the reasons potentially why the resource sector has taken a huge backslide. I would have said that there were three causes for that bull market. One was simply the bear market that preceded it. The latter part of the decade of the 1990s saw a very, very deep and sustained decline in commodities prices and capital availabilities available to commodities industries. So in fact, the sector was under-owned and under-invested. The second circumstance that I think really manifested itself was the emergence of China. We had another competitor on a global scale for resource commodities. You'll recall that Dong Xiaoping had said to be rich is glorious. And the opening up of Chinese people to the world economy, I think, generated a real boom. And the third was, I think, growing globalization and internationalization in trade and opportunities. We had the ability to explore in places that weren't available to us. Now, not all of those circumstances are available today, but let's relook at that scorecard. In the first instance, we are coming off a catastrophic bear market in commodities and commodities equities that goes really all the way back to 2012, a pretty sustained market. So there isn't much competition in the space and there has been lots of underinvestment. Meanwhile, although China has advanced, other parts of the frontier market economies haven't kept pace, but you're beginning to see the awakenings as an example in India and also in the African continent where I spend a lot of time. And what you see Ellis, is that the improvements in living standards of the poorest 2 billion people on earth turn out to be a tremendous driver of commodities markets. When you and I get more money, we don't get more stuff. We're happier when we get rid of stuff. But when very poor people get more money, they improve their family's diets, they upgrade from foot traffic to a 75cc motorcycle or to a Hilux pickup truck, they put steel roofs on to replace thatch. In other words, when they get more money, the things that bring them utility are stuff intensive, commodities intensive. And I think that will be as true of this bull market as the last bull market. The last circumstance, which is more liberalized trade, I'm afraid seems to be in reverse. And that is one thing that might slow down the bull market. This trend towards restrictive trade and increased tariff is, of course, a tax on consumers. And it's rich people who are good for commodities, not poor people who are good for commodities. So the outlook is mostly bullish, but a little bit bearish. The other point that you made, 9-11, uh, I would argue that we're facing another 
9-11, one of a very different authorship. This is an arithmetic 9-11 or actuarial 9-11, a circumstance where just in the United States, we have $22 trillion in on-balance sheet liabilities at the federal level and almost $100 trillion off-balance sheet liabilities. That is, we owe each other and other people $120 trillion. And we propose to service this obligation with a federal deficit that will exceed $1.5 trillion this year. It falls to the big thinkers to tell me how you add a column of negative numbers and come to a positive sum. So I suspect that the 9-11, as you will, the trigger for the impending bull market in precious metals as opposed to broad commodities, will simply be the arithmetic challenge of servicing the debt we owe each other with no income. Thank you, Rick. That was well stated in a variety of categories, most of which I hope to address with my comments and your response to that. So I see you referenced a commodities boom potentially driven by Africa and India and still the emerging economy of China. That's another ball of wax. That's a, a fireball at this point. And I see the case for base metals, copper, zinc. I don't see the case for gold unless we have that trigger that you just discussed. How do those two different ends of the resource sector, how do they work together? How do they drive a market? Well, I think you've addressed things well. If we can sustain the increase in living standards among the poorest 2 billion people on earth, which by the way, has been in place for 30 years, we will do well in the broad industrial commodities. We will do well in agricultural minerals, in base metals, in energy metals. We will do very well. Separately, the gold price, which I think is decoupled from the price of other commodities, except perhaps in people's minds, could do well in one of two ways. The first would be the consequence of America's flirtation with so-called modern monetary theory, which is a fancy way of saying counterfeiting. And the second would again be increased living standards and increased disposable incomes in societies like China and India, where a substantial part of individual savings over time has taken place in precious metals rather than fiat currencies. In other words, I would suggest to you that gold and silver, and to a lesser degree, platinum and palladium, have two different ways to win. One, as a consequence of the debasement of their primary competitor, which is the U.S. 10-year treasury, or the U.S. dollar as expressed by the U.S. 10-year treasury. The other is an increased amount of disposable income and hence increased savings in societies like South Asia and East Asia where precious metals have always had a substantial market share among savings products and should continue. This narrative is similar to the narrative that I heard and some of us pervade back in 2006. How is it different? I'm not so sure it is different. The difference between now and running it a little bit later, sort of 2008, 2009, is that you'll recall that commodities had a tremendous run. They were really, really in favor. Just as a bear market sets up a bull market, a bull market sets up a bear market. You will recall that in the last run, the gold price went from $250 an ounce to $1,900 an ounce. It did precisely what was asked of it. At $1,900 relative to competing stores of value or mediums of exchange, it didn't need to go up anymore. And by the way, this bear market has only taken it down to $1,200. The truth is, if you're a long-term investor in gold, you have to ask yourself, has the price declined from $1,900 to $1,200 or has it increased from $250 to $1,200? It really depends on your vantage point. But I would suggest that the most important triggers, particularly for equity investors, are simply deciding for yourself, given that we have all acknowledged these are capital-intensive cyclical businesses, am 
I at the end of a bear market or am I at the end of a bull market? Because bear markets cause bull markets and bull markets cause bear markets. If you look at the small cap resource sector, which is what Sprott follows, the TSXV resource index is off by over 80% from its highs, which would seem to define a bear market to me. What is the investment strategy right now with Sprott? What are you doing? What are you buying? What are you holding on to? What are you selling, if anything? And why is this one of the best opportunities potentially that we've ever seen, considering that that market is now 80% off of what it was? Well, for a bunch of reasons. The first thing I see is that so many of our competitors cease to exist. One example of a bear market is a healthy purge, and we have certainly seen that in extractive industries. So the most important thing that Sprott has done is stayed the course. If you look back one prior bear market to the one that we described, the one coming out of the decade of the 1980s into the 1990s, a sort of ideological predecessor to Sprott was Dundee Bank Corp. It came into existence in a prior bear market. And interestingly, simply by staying the course, simply by continuing to invest in expertise, building up its balance sheet, building up its market reach, that stock went from 50 or 60 cents in the late 1980s to $42 in the middle of the decade of the 90s. So the first thing that Sprott's doing is sticking with its knitting. You're not going to see us go into the currently popular sectors. You're going to see us in resources. And you're going to continue to see us in the sectors of the resource industry where the supply of capital is constrained. You will see us continue as a market leader in providing bridge, mezzanine, and construction finance to non-investment grade issuers. It's amusing to me, Ellis, that in a market market where the equity indexes in small cap resource issuers have fallen by 80%. Sprott itself in its lending business has generated over a 15% annual internal compound rate of return by lending to these same companies over time. So we'll continue to do this. We will continue to provide solutions for precious metals buyers. As you know, our Sprott Physical Precious Metals Trusts, which trade on the New York Stock Exchange, are very tax efficient vehicles for U.S. investors. And the market acceptance for them has been been tremendous. We manage over $6 billion all raised during a bull market for precious metals. But we're not resting on our laurels there. We're using the new technologies in the blockchain and distributed ledger to make investments in companies that will further compress the costs that investors worldwide have to buy, store, and transfer precious metals. We're making lots of investments in the blockchain and distributed ledger precisely as they relate to broadly commodities, but specifically gold and silver trading. And finally, we are continuing our investment in our core business, which is investing other people and our own funds in the equities of sub-billion dollar market cap spaces. By the way, I think think that you will see an important analysis announcement from Sprott in that regard before the conference, something that signals our continued investment in, and I would in fact say dominance, in natural resource equities in the sub-billion market cap space. You mentioned these equities, and you're going to have some very interesting companies at this conference, the Sprott Vancouver Symposium on Natural Resources, July 30th through August 2nd at the Fairmont Hotel in Vancouver. Beautiful city. Let's talk about some of those companies, that collective, and why you've got them there. Well, I think the most important difference between ourselves and other conferences, many of which, as you know, I attend and enjoy, is that in order for an exhibitor to present at our conference, 
they need to be owned in Sprott managed accounts. It doesn't mean that every stock that Sprott buys goes up, sadly, but what it does mean is that the qualification to be an exhibitor means that we have vetted you. Our attendees have told us for many years that they consider exhibitors to be content too, not mere advertisers. And so we have an ironclad pledge to our attendees that the exhibitors will be owned in Sprott managed accounts. And we think that's an important differentiator. Another really important differentiator is that in common with many conferences in the world, we bring in, you know, the sort of big picture gurus, newsletter editors with combined circulations in excess of a billion dollars, general commentators, Naomi Prince is an example, or Daniela DiMartino Booth or Jim Rickards. But beyond that, because Sprott has been in the business so long, we bring in founders and operators of companies that have built billions of dollars worth of wealth from shareholders from a standing start. Talking not just about their companies, but also the lessons they learned building those companies and how those lessons govern their own investments and how they can improve you as an investor. Walking around the exhibit floor, following a Bob Quartermain or a Robert Friedland or a Ross Beatty, listening to them ask questions of other exhibitors is a wonderful way to improve your own prowess as a speculator. Well, I always enjoy myself at these conferences that Sprott has in July, the end of July. I have a great time, especially on the cruise. And, you know, one of the most interesting things that I've noticed at this particular conference, being that it's Canada and there are Canadian listed companies, most of them with U.S. listings, of course, as well, is that there are a fair amount of Americans attending. The conference over its sort of 25 years in existence has been sort of 75% U.S. people. Last year, if my memory serves me correctly, we enjoyed attendees from 16 different countries. One of the things that you'll see is these days an important coterie of Australian listed exhibitors and also Australian attendees, people who have come to learn that the mining business is truly a global business and that they're going to compete with other people. They need to be less ethnocentric. Canadian people need to understand about London listed vehicles. Americans need to learn about Australian listed vehicles. The world is becoming global. You have the ability to invest globally. Why on earth would you constrain yourself to your own neighborhood? You know, I noticed that the Australians in general have been some of the most aggressive miners, and by that I mean developing, exploring, and producing in the world, and they know North America. Very true. The Australian companies have really delivered for investors. The consequence of that is that the malaise in equity prices that has plagued their European and North American counterparts does not plague the Australians. Right now, the expectations of them are higher. Their cost of capital is lower, and they're using that cost of capital advantage in a capital-intensive business to begin to acquire some of their North American competitors. The world is a wonderful place where the most efficient producer wins. Last time you and I spoke in a forum, we talked about uranium. Your thoughts? You know, I'm a real uranium bull. The International Energy Agency says the fully loaded cost to produce a pound of uranium, importantly, this includes cost of capital and prior year's write-downs, is about 60 U.S. dollars a pound. The industry makes the stuff for 60, and they sell it for 25. <laughs> Eventually, this gets boring. It's one of those circumstances where either the price of the stuff has to go up, or in big parts of the world, including the United States, the lights go off. You need to ask yourself which you think is most likely. Will the price of uranium go up or will the lights go off? I believe the price of uranium will go up. And what's important about this, Ellis, is when the price begins to go up, by the way, it's when, not if, the memory of the last uranium bull market, where the uranium price went from $8 a pound to $140 a pound, and where the equities outpaced the uranium price, 
the memory of that incredible bull market will be fresh enough in enough people's minds that I suspect, pardon the pun, the reaction among investors and speculators will be explosive to the upside. When will it occur? I don't know. What I do know is that when questions, questions where the answer begins with when, are better than if questions, questions where the answer begins with if. And uranium is certainly, in my view, a when question. Rick Rule, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. I'll see you soon in Vancouver. Always a pleasure, Ellis. I look forward, and I'm delighted by the way you mentioned that it's possible for people to have fun in Vancouver. <laughs> We're going to work you very, very, very hard. But don't let us work you so hard that you don't have the opportunity to go out in a wonderful, beautiful, cosmopolitan city with hundreds, hundreds of excellent restaurants within walking distance of the conference. It's my favorite city in North America, especially in June, July, and August. Thanks, Rick. (laughs) Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. I've been speaking with Rick Rule, the president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings Incorporated. Learn more about Sprott Global by visiting their website, SprottGlobal.com. Don't forget to register and attend the Sprott Natural Resource Symposium to be held Monday, July 29th, 2019 through Friday, August 2nd, 2019 at the Fairmont Hotel in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. To register for this event, go to SprottConference.com. That's SprottConference.com. For the Ellis Martin Report, I'm Ellis Martin. If you're a principal in a publicly traded company seeking exposure to our listening audience, send us an email, martinreports at gmail.com. That's martinreports at gmail.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Maximilian Solly, the CEO of Barion Mining Corporation. The company trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol BARI. Barion is a new junior exploration company focused on acquiring proven gold assets in the United States. Barion has two projects, a highly prospective Carlin-type bolo asset located near Tonpa, Nevada, and the silver and gold sleeper asset in southwestern New Mexico. Max, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Now, you have some amazing data that you've just gleaned from a geophysical survey on your bolo gold property in Nevada. It's pretty exciting. Let's talk about that. Well, you know, it was better results than we expected as a board. Essentially, there were three zones at Bolo that had mineralization and some high-grade gold and silver results. And the best case scenario was that those three zones connected. From what the geophysics show us, it looks like some type of mineralization does occur along that strike and looks like the three zones do connect. So what we're going to do is now we're just working on creating a drill program around that. You know, if you look at the images on our press release, there's a second image which shows all these self-mine fault high-grade drill intercepts, 133 meters, uh, 1.3 grams per ton from surface. It looks like it could keep going deeper. All the other holes that were drilled looks like they didn't go deep enough. And it's just, it looks like a big pocket of mineralization underneath where those drills went. So very, very encouraging results so far. A number of untested zones here. The Uncle Sam silver deposit, to me, looks like a big fist of silver. And we're happy to get testing some of these zones in our upcoming work program, which is probably the third week of June. So within a, less than a month of listing, we've completed the IP results for the geophysics and here they are to the market. And we're very excited to now create the drill program. You know, I know you've got consistent gold evidently over a, a long swath, but what really interests me is the amount of silver that I've seen. I know of a, a company, I won't mention their name, they're down in Sonora State, Mexico. They're a $4 stock now with that type of grade. You know what? The nice thing about this is that silver zone we have, Uncle Sam, was actually previously producing about 100 years ago. There is a sign on the property that says previous mines. It is recognized by the state of Nevada as a previous 
basically producing silver pit, I guess you could say. So there always has been high-grade silver in that area, very, very high-grade. And we'd like to drill a couple of holes in there or, or one deep one to see if what it looks like from the geophysics is correct. And that could be fantastic for us because we know it was previously mined. So for someone to get back in there and start breaking up those rocks on surface could be quite interesting. And maybe, you know, depending on price of silver, might be worth doing in the near future. Well, it's about 11 ounces per ton. And I think dollar for dollar, that's a little bit more valuable than gold right now. If you had an ounce per ton at 1300 US with silver at about 15 or so, I think I could be wrong. It's very, very significant. And it's at surface and you don't know what's underneath all of that yet, do you? No, we do not. But we'll probably pop a hole in there in the next six weeks. And then it'll probably take a little bit to get the results back from the lab. But drilling is fairly inexpensive. We have $400,000 US. We're going to spend drilling roughly 1,800 meters. It's very exciting stuff. The high-grade gold from surface looks like it does continue deeper than we thought. And, you know, our best case scenario is it does. And we'll have some phenomenal results in the fall for everyone. You know, I'd like to speculate as to what you would do with a big silver project, spin it out or what have you, does it become gold equivalent? But I'm not going to speculate, although I think I just did. You know what? It's always nice to have both the gold and the silver. We are definitely aiming to get some of the high-grade gold. The silver equivalent is turning out to be phenomenal. We're going to go for it also. So, And you can pretty much drill year-round, can't you? 100%. Yes, sir. This is a new company. It's not like we have 100 million shares out there, 200 million shares out there. You're fairly tightly held. Yeah, it's about 43 million shares fully diluted. Management is a big holder of that. There's some very good shareholders that we have in the deal, and hopefully we can get a few new ones in there as well. So we've been around for five weeks, let's say, as a public company. We're cashed up and ready to go for this drill program, and hopefully the market shows us some love once we're done that. Well, it's really important in this particular market to have some grade to talk about, to have some results like this. In other words, go big or go home, essentially. I agree with that 100%. Max, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to more news when you've got it soon, hopefully. Thank you for joining me today on the program. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Maximilian Solly, CEO and Director of Barion Mining Corporation. The company trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol BARI. For the Yellow Smart Report, I'm Ellis Martin. We'd like to get to know you. Yes, we would. Subscribe to our newsletter. Log on to ellismartinreport.com and the pop-up window will assist you in doing so. It's free. I'm not. But it is. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me at the Wilshire Restaurant in Santa Monica, California for a conversation with Sam Pazuki, the Vice President of Corporate Development for the Oceana Gold Corporation, trading on the TSX and the ASX as OGC, and in the United States under the symbol OCANF. Oceana Gold is a mid-tier, high-margin, multinational gold producer with assets located in the Philippines, New Zealand, and the United States. Sam, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining me today. Great to be here. Now, if you don't mind, tell me about your company. Give us an overview. Yes, Oceana Gold is a mid-tier multinational gold producer. We truly are global. We've got four operations. We consider them to be high-quality operations that produce mainly gold. This year, producing 500 to 550,000 ounces of gold. Plus, we also produce copper out of our Philippines operation. We've got a very low-cost structure. We generate a lot of free cash flow. We're a company that's focused on margins. We're focused on returns. And we've delivered very consistent, positive performance for a number of years now. So if you don't mind, explain the low cost aspect of your business. Is everything at surface, near surface? So for a company of our size, we actually do a lot of things quite well. So we're good at exploring, we're good at developing, we build our own operations. So a lot of the mines we have in our portfolio, we've built ourselves. So we don't farm it out. We're very good at operating. 
operating. We've got open pit mines, we've got underground mines. So we operate both right now. We've got both in our portfolio. In terms of metallurgy, we've got some complex metallurgy in our business, and we're very good in terms of treating that through the process plants that we have. What are you doing in this market? This is a different market, a little bit of a challenging market. Where are you seeing your most success? Oceana has been built on M&A. So if you look at the company's evolution, we've actually come together through external transactions. So in 2015, we were quite acquisitive when the gold price was at one of the lowest points that we've seen in several years. So we acquired the Wahi gold mine from Newmont for $100 million. We've generated significant values since then. And we also acquired Remarco Minerals, which brought the Hale gold mine into our portfolio in that same year. We've grown through M&A, but right now we're in a place where through the operations that we have, we've built up a very strong pipeline of organic growth opportunities. So within five years, we think we can increase our production base by 50% from where we are today. And that's a realistic goal that we have, where we can see our business producing seven 700 to 750,000 ounces of gold with all-in costs in the 700s within five years. And that's exactly what you do in a challenging market. You take advantage of those opportunities. Are you looking for more external opportunities or more organic growth or both? Yeah, because we've got a robust pipeline of organic growth opportunities, which are real, which are permitted, and we're in the process of investing in them, that's where our focus is. But we have an M&A team that's based in Denver. We've looked at 120 companies and projects in the last seven years. We've only done two transactions, two major transactions, but we always have to remain engaged in the space to look for opportunities. We've got a due diligence team that's internal. So we continue to evaluate new opportunities. There's nothing that we're close to at the moment, but where there is value, that's certainly something that we would be looking at. Are you a potential M&A target? We run a very robust business. We generate a lot of cash. We've got those four operations. We've got a lot of high quality organic growth opportunities in the pipeline that's not really seen in our share price. So there is quite a bit of value in our share price. We would of course be an M&A target. And we would be happy to transact with somebody as long as they provide an offer that our shareholders would accept. But we are certainly shareholders friendly. What brings you to Santa Monica? We tend to go where the money is. We've got a great story. It's an easy one to tell. Every time we market non-deal roadshows, we find investors who are gravitated to the Oceana story. We've got the metrics that investors like and basically looking for that incremental investor. So we're often on the road. We're often marketing in new areas. Southern California, there's a lot of money here, a lot of sophisticated investors, and we're very much interested in meeting them and very interested in telling our story to them. As somebody who's involved with a company that does a lot of merger and acquisitions and is looking for properties all over the world, why not California other than most Canadians that I know won't touch the environment with regard to investing in any properties out here or projects? Given that we looked at 120 companies and projects in the last six or seven years, we've pretty much looked at a lot of different things, including opportunities here in California. First and foremost, we want to make sure that the resource is there. And the resource is quite perspective here in California and, and into Nevada. But California, as you pointed out, does present some environmental regulations that might be a little bit too stringent for companies to invest in and get the returns that they're looking for. At this stage, there's nothing that we see that we'd be interested in. If we see something that is appealing, then we would look at it and we would evaluate it from the financial perspective to see what the environmental impacts are in terms of carbon taxes and whether or not it makes sense for us to invest in it. Let's talk about the grade of some of your projects. How does that work? Will you overlook a company that can't produce 
significant grade, if it's at surface, or are you into bulk tonnage at all? Give us a background on the company procedure in that area. Grade, grade, grade. I mean, that's what it comes down to. When the gold price goes up, when it, whether it goes down, especially when it goes down, the importance of grade is great. So we look for things that are high grade. We've got high grade operations in our portfolio. The highest grades we have right now is at Wahi, which is the asset we bought from Newmont. And we've just made a new discovery called WKP. And that currently has an initial resource that is just initial. It's just based on 12,000 meters of drilling. So it's 635,000 ounces with an average grade of 14 grams. So I mean, it's pretty significant discovery. We're getting hits, one ounce to the ton, two ounce to the ton, three ounce to the ton. Those are the things that we're looking for. And it is important. We do have a low grade operation, which is McRae's, which is a large orgenic system. One gram open pit, two grams underground. It does generate good free cash flow for us, but it's tough work. We want to do less work and make more money. And with the lower grade operations, you're doing a lot of work and not making as much money. So that's not what we're about. I'm curious as to why Newmont Gold Corp lets some of these properties go across the world, especially when some of them have significant high grade. Yeah, so I mean, Wahi was the smallest operation in Newmont's portfolio, and it's in New Zealand. I mean, Newmont's in Denver. They're focused on Nevada, focused on operations in North America and the Americas. It was too small for them to really give it the oxygen it needed. It's in better hands in companies like ours where we can give it the capital that it, it needs to, to find additional resources to extend the mine life. So even despite the discoveries that we've made and the mine life extensions that we've been able to, to prove up and the value we've created for shareholders, I don't think Newmont would have had any sort of second doubts in terms of selling that operation. It's in much better hands with us in Oceana, mid-tier producers, we can make something of it. Now with the consolidation in the industry, that presents an opportunity for us to look for other assets that Newmont, Gold Corp might sell, or even Barrick, who's consolidated with Rangold. Tell us about the management team. Let's start with Mick Wilkes. So Mick is a mining engineer. He's been in the business for over 30, 35 years. He's got significant experience operating in what I call socially complex jurisdictions. So Mick lived in Papua New Guinea for 10 years. He lived in Laos for five years. And with us, he's been at the helm for eight years in the Philippines. So he brings that sort of unique perspective. He's really transformed a business into what it is today, which is one of the leading gold mining companies in the world. That's created opportunities for shareholders to really generate some very strong returns over the past few years. He truly is a very strong technical, strategic CEO, and we've been in very good hands under his leadership now. Any other copper opportunities in Southeast Asia, yes or no? Well, we're a gold company, so if it comes with a copper byproduct, then we would be interested in it. So Didipio has been a significant asset for our business. It's generated over $600 million of free cash flow since 2013. A big part of that is the copper kicker that comes with the deposit. So if we find a gold deposit that has a copper kicker, then we'd certainly be interested in it. If it's pure copper, we wouldn't look at it. Thank you for the clarity on that. As a potential investment opportunity, and clearly you're touring the U.S. right now in Canada to expose your company to potential investors. What would you say to people in a challenging market right now that are looking for opportunity? Why Oceana? Well, Oceana has been a safe set of hands for a number of years now. Even despite the drop in gold price, it basically fell off a cliff in 2013. We've generated strong returns. If you look at our return on equity on average over the last five years, it's just under 11%. When if you look at our peer group, it's at zero. Almost negative. You look at a return on invested capital over the last five years on average. Again, we're just under 11%. 
our pure average is around 5%. We are the only gold mining company that's delivered a positive ROIC every single year going back to 2011. The only gold mining company to do that. So even despite a downturn in the gold price, we've been able to achieve all that, create value for shareholders. And that's why we're a safe pair of hands. That's why generalist investors like Oceana because they know that if they invest in us, we do what we say and we say what we do. And we have a low cost business, so we can withstand any significant drops in the gold price. Sam, thank you so much for coming down to Santa Monica to join me this evening. I wish you all the best. I look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity as well. It's great to be here. I've been speaking with Sam Pazuki, the Vice President of Corporate Development for the Oceana Gold Corporation, trading on the TSX and the ASX as OGC, and in the US as OCANF. Go to the website, oceanagold.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Jerome Jabour, CEO and Director of Matinas Biopharma, trading as MTMB on the New York Stock Exchange. Matinas Biopharma is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company focused on enabling the delivery of life-changing medicines using its lipid nanocrystal LNC platform technology. Jerry, welcome back to the program. Nice to have you with us today. Ellis, thanks so much for having me back. It's always a pleasure. I understand you just announced a research collaboration with Vive Healthcare to evaluate formulation of antiviral drug candidates. Let's talk about that. That's correct, Ellis. And this really is a really important moment for Matinas and for our LNC platform delivery technology. We've had a number of conversations over the years, and Matinas is one of those companies that's not a binary investment. We have a lot of different technologies and products within the company. And recently, we've spent a lot of time talking about our prescription omega-3 and kind of the profile of that drug and how it's set up to be potentially a best-in-class drug in a, in a billion-dollar class. But we have this really disruptive drug delivery platform, which allows us to take uh, molecules and make them orally bioavailable and deliver them right to a cell in the non-toxic fashion. And our strategy with that delivery platform is to really utilize the dollars and the expertise of big pharma to drive utilization or application of this platform forward in a non-dilutive manner. And just earlier this week, we did. We announced a research collaboration with Vive Healthcare. And that's really important because it's our second collaboration this year. And for those in your audience who may not be familiar with Vive Healthcare, they certainly will be familiar with the companies who joined together to start Vive Healthcare. And so Vive Healthcare came into being in 2009 as a joint venture between Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline focused exclusively on HIV and the development of antiviral therapies to treat, hopefully prevent, and eventually cure HIV. And so in announcing this collaboration with Vive Healthcare, we've essentially kind of aligned ourselves with some of the biggest companies in the world as we look to provide a delivery solution for antiviral therapies in a much needed area. Does that mean we're using potentially Matinas platform technology? technology to mitigate AIDS or prevent it? That's correct. I mean, Vive's whole goal is to design and create medicines to treat that disease.
disease, a disease that impacts about 1% of the world's population. And that may not sound like a lot, but it's more than 70 million people. And as with a lot of drugs, delivering medicine in an effective way and making sure that it's not toxic to the patient continues to be a challenge across the board. And when you're talking about HIV, there are obviously a number of antiviral medications which are used today in those patient populations. But over time, the disease has gotten smart and it hides in the body. And it hides oftentimes in cells in our body called macrophage. And it almost makes it very difficult for medicines which are not designed to gain access to cells to be effective in treating HIV. And it just so happens that our platform delivery technology is designed specifically to go to macrophage or to be taken up by macrophage. So there is a lot of excitement about our ability now to take existing medicines like those at Vive Healthcare and help make them more effective and safer for patients and get drugs exactly to the right spot in the body where this disease is hiding. And this is not our first foray into the HIV area. I mean, last year, we announced a collaboration with the National Institutes of Health where they were looking at not taking a small molecule drug, but actually taking some gene therapy drugs, an antisense drug, and attacking certain enzymes in the brain that are impacted by HIV. And so this is our second collaboration in the HIV area, but it's the first one with industry and provides, we believe, some validation from large pharma that our technology has the potential to solve some of these issues. So as I understand it, you're using existing medicines and a delivery system that you're a part of with regard to delivery that mitigates the toxicity risk. Did I get it right? That's correct. Yeah, you're You're exactly right. You're a great, great listener, Alice. And that's exactly what our delivery technology does. We can make oftentimes IV-only medicines oral, get oral bioavailability, and we get access to cells without creating unwanted side effects. And so that is what piqued the curiosity of big pharma in this instance. This model, this collaboration allows us to learn about what the synergies may be with big pharma without deciding how to value our platform in advance. And so it sets us up to be a part of the proof of concept with their molecules and then positions us once we have data from these early stage studies to then talk license with companies like Vive Healthcare, Pfizer, GSK about utilizing our technology, paying us for it, paying us downstream milestones in development, and then ultimately a royalty on sales of products that big pharma commercializes. So it allows us to really reap the benefit of our role without the traditional cost and risk of drug development. So it really mitigates a lot of challenges for small companies and allows us to be a meaningful solution without having to take on those burdens. Interesting. Streaming royalty, you've employed that system and a method of project generation where you get to keep the projects and you're everybody's friend. You're not just one big pharma company's friend, you're everybody's friend. And that's why the platform lends itself to a licensing strategy. We are positioning this to create a number of strategic verticals so that we can participate in multiple markets, across multiple therapeutic categories, across multiple companies, and not have to compete with these groups. We announced our first collaboration in January. That was in the oligonucleotide space, which is the gene therapy space. Now we have antivirals in our wheelhouse, and we're working towards several other collaborations in different areas. And what we want 
want to do is stack these all together and increase our, the number of shots on goal. Typically, and I know you're aware of this, Jerry, typically investors like to see a company that does just one thing and do it well. They're not necessarily attuned to different verticals, but you're breaking those molds. We're breaking that mold, but we also have that mold in our back pocket in terms of our internal development focus is on our omega-3. That's an area we know really well. We have the world's experts working with us on that program, but we weren't just going to shift our entire focus back to being a single asset company. That creates a binary opportunity and in our opinion, increases investor risk. What we want to do now is capitalize on two potential best-in-class assets and mitigate that risk and increase the amount of opportunity. And the reality is what we're really good at with this platform technology is formulation, understanding how to encapsulate these molecules in a way that big pharma cannot with its existing technologies and then give it back to them to really run with it. And so we are mitigating risk and increasing opportunity, and that should really resonate with investors. And aren't your partners, isn't Vive covering the cost of a lot of this and your other partners? And that's a really, really important part, Ellis, because we are able to advance our delivery platform on the back of non-dilutive dollars, where we don't have to utilize existing capital or not a tremendous amount of existing capital nor do we have to raise additional capital, which dilutes investors to drive this technology forward. We have now collaborators with deep, deep pocket who we can now utilize not only their expertise in the design of molecules, but their financial resources to help drive this forward so that we don't have to spend our own dollars. Well, let's talk about those financial aspects of the company that you just referred to, specifically your first quarter 2019 financial results. Now, you raised $32 million. Since Big Pharma is covering a lot of the cost of these developing technologies, where does that money go? That's a great question. And that really was a transformational transaction for us. It was led by large fundamental healthcare institutions. It was led by a group called Vivo Capital, a $3 billion Palo Alto hedge fund. And their interest was in helping us to advance the omega-3. So a lot of the resources or a lot of the dollars that we raised in that financing are being pointed towards our lead asset in the omega-3 space. But we don't have to sacrifice advancing the platform at the expense of the omega-3 because of both industry in terms of these platform collaborations, but also the federal government in the form of the National Institutes of Health is paying for our next study with our lead antifungal drug called MAT2203. And they're paying for a next study that will be conducted in cryptococcal meningitis, which is a brain fungal infection and will likely start later this year. We have an FDA interaction teed up for June to finalize that protocol. There's a lot of excitement within FDA because there's really no good alternative to treat that deadly fungal infection today. So with the dollars we have on hand, and at the end of the first quarter, we had more than $40 million in cash, that gives us a runway well into the first quarter of 2021. And through a number of meaningful value-driving catalysts where investors don't have to worry about when we're going to raise money next, 
before we create additional value in the company. So the combination of the dollars we've raised today and the opportunity that with success in some of these collaborations, we will have big pharma companies, we believe, wanting to write us checks, which can then fund all aspects of our business. So it's set up pretty well now that we have the financing in place for this to become an execution and a milestone achieving story. What are we looking at six months to 12 months down the road with regard to Matinas? What exists for us in the future? There's a lot, Ellen. You know, it's certainly not a short list of things. For us, we have a lot of different milestones coming up. So obviously, starting this trial in cryptococcal meningitis is really big. And we'll have some first PK data from that study later this year. And PK data in that study is very important because what we're looking to do is taking an existing medicine that's very, very effective, but very, very toxic and give it to patients. And the PK data, we believe, will show us that this drug is well tolerated. That's not just check the box sort of data. That's meaningful. And then we will begin to see data from these collaborations. We hope to have data by the end of the year on the collaboration we announced in January. That will be important because that will signal the opportunity then to bring in licensing dollars. And then when you think about MAT 9001, it's about getting that drug into patients. We're going to start two studies with MAT 9001 in the second half of this year. One will read out by the end of the year. We'll have an additional data readout early in the first quarter of next year. And there's also some macro issues going on. Our main competitor in the omega-3 space is set to get an expanded label, which would allow it to treat more than 70 million patients in this country. And that's where market expansion will occur. And remember, we have head-to-head data against that drug showing that we're superior across a number of different lipid biomarkers. So whether it's starting studies, whether it's data from these studies, whether it's It is market events which cause valuation increases. The back half of 2019 and the first half of 2020 are full of milestones, which we believe will significantly increase the value of Matinas. You know, when I first became aware of MAT 9001 and Matinas, I thought, great, you'd be a potential takeout candidate. And that always looks good as an investor with all these other verticals. I see you as a significant entity on your own and might be around for a long time and turning away takeout offers from Big Pharma. But that's not my call. That would be a good position to be in. And what we're intent on doing is creating value, creating opportunity. And if people continue to want to engage us in either taking our assets on an individual basis or they want to scoop up the whole company, we'll listen. But we have so many different things going on that there could be any number of discussions on a product basis or a company basis where we become a takeout candidate. But those discussions become appropriate and more exciting as we continue to increase value in the company. Any sort of takeout transaction is always done on a multiple of what your current valuation is, as in companies project what your value is likely to be in the future. And so our attractiveness is only going to increase as we execute and advance these programs. And we're not looking for one company to make one decision to buy Matinas. We are aligning ourselves with multiple deep pocket partners who each could write checks, which would be very attractive for us to consider. Well, Jerry, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. I look forward to more updates in the near future. Ellis, we always appreciate your time and the opportunity to give updates to your audience, and we look forward to talking again very soon. I've been speaking with Jerome Jabor, CEO and Director of Matinas Biopharma. Trading as MTNB on the New York Stock Exchange. Find them at MatinasBiopharma.com. I'm Ellis Martin. 
Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website. EllisMartinReport.com.